you've read books, you've all watched movies, and you've had this experience. Sometimes the ending of the book, of the movie, of the story is a good ending. And by good, I don't just mean happy. I mean it fit with the story. But sometimes you put your time into a movie that maybe isn't even good to begin with, but you get all the way to the end, and it's like, what are they thinking? Why, why did they end it that way? Sometimes endings can feel just tacked on. It's almost like they didn't know what they were saying. They didn't know where they were going. They were just trying to make some money, and so they just brought this thing to an end. But if you read a really good story, right, the themes flow from beginning all the way until the end. At first glance, this section, the end of Matthew's gospel, referred to as the Great Commission, feels like a strange kind of nailed-on ending to an otherwise powerfully engaging story of Jesus Christ, his life and death and resurrection. It feels like a Mr. Potato Head ending. You guys remember Mr. Potato Head? They changed the name. It's not Mr. Potato Head anymore. <laughs> but you remember Mr. Potato Head. When my ki- we had Mr. Potato Heads too. And my kids, when they were little, had them and would stick all of the body parts. Remember when they were young? in like the wrong places. See, as adults, you don't do that. As adults, the nose goes here and the eyes go here and the mouth goes here. But with kids, they're just like sticking them on. And so they would bring these Mr. Potato Head creations to me that actually at first glance were were, uh, quite horrifying. (laughs) I used to think of them as the Picasso Mr. Potato Head. Like this is the Guernica Potato Head, Picasso Potato Head. It's a Picasso potato head is when you pay no mind to the normal flow of things and you just stick things anywhere. That's what Matthew's ending feels like. It feels like it's just bolted on. It feels crudely attached. It's like Matthew getting to the end of his gospel, anticipated all the pastors in the world who would need a section of scripture to utilize on Mission Sunday. It's like pastors are going to need, they need to motivate the church to do something. And so let me just, let me, in, in light of all those, those, those pastors who are going to be laying in bed at night wondering what to preach, what to call the church to, what kind, of, what kind of mission, what kind of activity, what kind of energy should we give to this Jesus, let me just put this in there so that they can tell their people about the importance of living lives of missional purpose. It seems out of the flow of the events that have formed the climactic end of the gospel. The drama of betrayal, the drama of Christ's trial, the drama of of his execution, the drama of his resurrection, and then we just slap this mission moment on at the end. But that would be wrong thinking. Matthew has been very intentional. If we understand 
his ending of this gospel, we'll see that it actually makes for the perfect ending of the drama of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's actually a riveting highlight moment of the gospel if we see it that way, and it actually couldn't have ended any other way. It actually flows naturally with the direction Matthew has established in the first 27 chapters of his gospel, but we don't even have to go back to the first 27 chapters. If you just go back to the beginning of chapter 28, you'll see the connections. The first half of chapter 28 shows us why and shows us the purpose of the second half. The first half of chapter 28 shows us why the second half is here. You might have been thinking, well, where's the Easter in the section Kenny just read? Well, look at chapter 28, verse 1. We're going to look at the beginning of chapter 28. And I want to highlight three shocking events that are going to take place in this section. Three shocking events that have a lot to do with Easter. So look at chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, let's stop there. That sounds very ordinary. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went. It seems like the description of a very ordinary day. The first day of the Jewish week is Sunday. We often think of the first day of our week as Monday. So it reads like, after the weekend was over, early Monday morning, Mary went somewhere with Mary. It's pretty ordinary. Well, where did they go? They went to see what church the tomb now it's got significance right because we know what tomb they were going to see it wasn't just any tomb it's a reference to Christ's tomb the context is the death and resurrection of Jesus it's a seemingly ordinary scene but it's about to get extraordinary so I want you to see three shocking events that happen very quickly as Matthew recounts the events of the resurrection Shocking event number one, an angel's arrival. That always has a shocking effect. You know when you've experienced that. (laughs) That was supposed to be funny. You haven't experienced that for most of you. If you have, come talk to me at the end of the service. Shocking event number one, the arrival and appearance of an angel. Look at verses two through four. And behold, so they went to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, or a great earthquake. Okay, so we've already—I skipped right over that shocking event. That's literally shocking. Great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Do you ever imagine what angels look like? Whatever you imagine they look like, forget about it. They don't look like what you imagine. Forget your mental image of angels. Forget those cute little babies on Hallmark cards, little wings. Forget that. They don't look like that. 
Forget those Christmas angels, all in white, with feminine faces and feminine hair. Forget the Christmas pageant bedsheet and the tinsel costume. What do angels look like? Matthew clues us in. They look like lightning. You know what lightning looks like? You ever been scared to death in a lightning storm? Bright flashes of lightning? That resembles an angel more than the three pictures you just saw. Bright brilliance, the megawattage of God's glory. And we're told that the soldiers, so think Navy SEALs, who are not particularly jumpy, nervous type. These are hardened soldiers. It says at the sight of the angel, they trembled and fell down like they were dead. That, friends, is what the appearance of an angel will do to you. That's what those two Marys saw, but that was just the first shock. That was just the beginning. Second shock. Second shock is found in verses 5 through 7. Not only did they see an angel, but the angel talked to them. The angel speaks is the second shock. Verses 5 through 7, what's he say? But the angel said to the women... This is what angels have a habit of saying in the Bible. They always start with this phrase, don't be afraid. Evidently, there's a lot to be afraid of when you see one. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And then they make three the angel makes three statements. These independent clauses seem to jump out to me. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. And then they turned, the angel turned to show them. It's almost as if proof through the ears wasn't enough. Auditory proof wasn't enough. And so he said, here, look. Come, see the place where he lay. So in addition to auditory proof, they got visual proof. The angel showed him. He confirmed to them the resurrection visually. Christ really was not there. And then he told them, go quickly and tell his disciples 
that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. The disciples are going to see him in Galilee. And this is what the Marys were to tell the disciples. These are the first two people in all the gospel accounts to witness the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Three shocking events, but it can be hard for us to feel the shock of those events. What must it have been like? I, I, what must it have been like to go to the tomb to see an angel? And just when you thought that that was shocking enough, blazing like lightning, to have the angel speak to you. And then after having the angel speak to you, turn and what happens? The third shocking event. What happens after this? How much more can two people take? I mean, this will get you a free drink every time you go out on Friday nights for the rest of your life. I'm Mary Magdalene, you know, the one who saw Jesus res risen from the dead, the one who saw the angel. Then, verses 9 and 10, just when they couldn't be shocked anymore, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. So they're filled with fear, and they're filled with great joy, and they're running trying to get to the disciples, and behold, Jesus shows up. And we're told that he said greetings. <laughs> he must have said more than that, right? He, he must have. Matthew says he said greetings. Imagination is good, though. Speculation is good. It says they came up to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but this really affected me this morning when I was praying. Why, why Mary Magdalene? Why, why Mary and Mary? Why not Peter? Why not the disciples? Why not the woman at the well? You know, we could just come up with so many characters. You know, you can search world religions over, and you will find... Christianity to be shocking in a lot of ways. And one of the re reasons why it's so shocking is because of its portrayal of women, women who would have been completely devalued in this, this society. Jesus is always flipping the script, guys. He's always doing a reversal. He's always up to something. He's always turning everything upside down. Women's testimony in court 
would have been devalued because of their gender. Jesus knows this. And he shows up and reveals his risen self to people that society would have considered less than. Mary Magdalene prostitute. She's not the first one you invite to your parties. She's not the first one for any reason. Yes, she is. She gets to see Jesus first. Because Jesus has a way of turning everything upside down. The values of the kingdom of God are not the values of this earth. Aren't you thankful, church? The resurrection's flipping everything. It's reversing everything. Scripture tells us that the disciples, his closest friends, abandoned him. Do you know who stood at a distance and watched him crucified? The Scripture tells us who it was. Mary. It's like... Mary, I love you. I see what you've been through. I've changed you, and I saw your love for me. You responded to my love for you by loving me in return, and you get to see me first. I love that. And if you're in Christ, you're going to see him. You're going to see him. And you don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. You're just like Mary Magdalene. Your best hope is that you're just responding to his love and his grace. Your money's not going to get you a, an audience with Jesus. Your, your good works aren't going to get you an audience with Jesus. It's only your faith and belief in his name that he is the Savior that he says he is. That he's not, he's not here, he's risen, just as he said. Why? Because he's the Savior of the world. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Amen. Now we're asking ourselves a question. What is this great commission doing here at the end of Matthew's gospel? Because it's stuck here at the end of an account of the resurrection. Is the Great Commission, does it fit? Is it the right ending? Well, let's ask this question. Why Galilee? Why not just go get the disciples? They're, in, they're here in Jerusalem, too. Why, why not just go get them? Why does he tell the, the Marys to tell the disciples to go to Galilee? He says, go tell my brothers, Galilee. Go tell them I'm risen. Go tell them Galilee. I'll see them there. Why? Why Galilee? The agenda of the risen Jesus is Galilee. Why? Why does that matter? Why not just right here, right now, Jesus? Jesus. Why don't you call him yourself, Jesus? 
Everyone's going to hike up to Galilee now, north of Jerusalem. Why? It all has to happen in Galilee. Now that he's risen, Galilee is the place to find him. Why? Places often have symbolic significance. Under the Nazis, Nuremberg became the focal center of Nazi propaganda, Nazi rule. It was the, it was the, the birthplace of the anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws that were signed there. And when the war was finally over, they needed to decide on a place where they would try those responsible for the atrocious crimes that had taken place. The Allies chose what city? Nuremberg. Why? Because it was a fitting place for justice to come for those who were at the center of the Nazi regime. Places sometimes have symbolic significance. What's the significance of Galilee? Well, you got to go to Isaiah 9 in order to understand its significance. You don't need to go there. I'm going to read you a section from it, and you actually know this section. You actually probably have a portion of Isaiah 9 memorized, and you don't even know it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then there's these names for this son, right? What are some of those names, church? Wonderful. Sing it. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, you know Isaiah 9. What you don't know is the beginning of Isaiah 9, probably. Isaiah 9.1 says this. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What's the significance? The geography of Israel and its surroundings was such that when armies wanted to invade Israel, they came through and would sweep down from the north. Galilee was often the first place hit. They're going to invade Israel. If they want to get to Jerusalem, they would oftentimes come through Galilee. It was a lush, fertile, green farming region, but it actually became known, as Isaiah refers to it in verse 2, as a land of deep darkness and the shadow of death because many people who lived in Galilee were the first ones to be killed when the armies swept in to overtake them. Yet it was in this place that Isaiah had a vision of a light dawning, of the sun rising. The people who walked in darkness, do you see this? Have seen, that's verse 2, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. There's going to be a new invasion, Isaiah says. But it's going to be an invasion of a totally different kind. God was about to flood that land of darkness with a great light, with salvation, with joy. This time, an invasion from foreign nations. Not, it's this time, it's not an invasion from foreign nations. This time, it's an invasion to the nations. The increase of his government shall not end. 
Galilee of the nations is the Lord, is the risen Lord's business. Galilee of the nations is where he's headed. Galilee of the nations is where he told the disciples to meet him. And it would be the launching pad of the risen Lord's command and commission, which he gives to them at the end of Matthew's gospel before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. It fits. It's not a Picasso potato head. Jesus is raised, right, is raised from the dead. He, he heads straight for Galilee of the nations, and this is what he says. We're going to read it again. What does he say? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you. Always to the end of the age. What is Christ's command? This great commission ends with a commissioning. He ends, Matthew ends this gospel. He rises from the dead and then he tells them to meet him in Galilee and he gives them his mandate. He gives them his commission. He gives them a command. Church, what is it? The command, we should know what this is. Resurrection significance. If, if Jesus has risen and these are his last words, we should be paying attention to them. What is Jesus' command? I'll summarize, universal disciple-making. Universal disciple-making. The resurrection produces mission. The resurrection produces mission. The command to go and do these things is bound up in who Jesus is. Who is he? He's been exalted. That's what we're worshiping. He's risen again. He's exalted. Through his resurrection and his ascension, the king has been enthroned. Are you guys still with me? All authority has been given to him. The universe is his. His authority exists over everything. The air you're breathing right now belongs to Jesus. The place we're sitting right now, the place where you live, Jesus is the rightful Lord over. His power is not restricted to one or two special places in the world. His power is not restricted to Jerusalem. His power is not restricted to America. No, the whole world is his by right. And the whole world needs to be alerted to this fact. Jesus is ruler, Jesus is savior, Jesus is king, and all authority is his. Therefore, go to all nations. His reign is global, so therefore our concern should be global. His reign is global, so our concern should not be local. His reign is global, so our concern should not be parochial. The resurrection produces mission. Church, here we have it. The Easter, the resurrection, produces mission, and mission is not a hobby, just a special Christian hobby, just for people that happen to be interested in that sort of thing. The mission is for everybody who's in Christ. It's not an optional activity for those that are good at it, and there are some people that are good at it. There's people in this church that are just good at reaching out to people. Gabe comes to mind. He's just good at it. You have friends like that, they're just, they're just always telling people about Jesus. Rebecca Flack is good at it. Bethany and Nicole, they're good at it. 
They just, they just reach out to people and people come and respond. But it's not just for them. It's not just for the sevens on the Enneagram. It's, it's, it's for all of us who are in Christ. The resurrection has produced this for all of us. Jesus' command comes to all of us, not just a select few. The commands and concerns of Jesus are to function as the commands and the concerns of his disciples. The progress of the gospel to and among the nations is to be on the heart of all believers. If Jesus is the risen Lord, then this has to matter to us. It has to matter to us. It's bound up. The command, the commission is bound up in who he is. It's bound up in what he requires. What does he require? He's seeking disciples. It says that. Followers, not just converts. People are going to be baptized this morning. We've got two ladies who are going to be baptized here in just a few minutes, and I'm so excited for that. Are you excited for that? Baptism is one of the best things we do around here. But Jesus is not just looking for people who will jump into a, a pool of water, or trough of water in this case. Jesus is not just looking for someone who will pray a prayer or write their name on a card. He's not looking for converts. He's looking for followers. He's looking for people like Mary, whose life would be transformed, and then they follow him. He's looking for men and women who will be mature in our faith, who will be rooted in, in the gospel and the teachings of Scripture and grow up, not just stay babies for the rest of our lives, but to grow up in faith. He's looking for people who will love him, love one another, and love the world. That's why we're looking for the same. If Jesus is looking for people that will love him, love one another, and love the world with the gospel, then that's what I'm looking for. That's what we're looking for. Not hit and run evangelistic events. Young believers like those who are being baptized are to be nurtured in their faith and to grow up so that they'll turn and do the same thing for others. It doesn't stop here, right? Well, Amen. Got little kids saying, yes, preach truth. All believers, all Christian people are to be built up in Jesus. Unreached people are to be reached. Reached people are to grow up, are to be helped to grow up so that we might, every successive generation might serve the purposes of, of God in their generation and then die. And go be with him. That sounded kind of bleak. <laughs> it's bound up in what he promises. What does he promise? And we're going to end here. We can have Darren return. It's bound up in what he promises. Soon, in this text, we don't hear of the ascension. That's going to take place. And then when Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit is poured out on his people. And by the Spirit, he promises to be with us, church, universally permanently. By his spirit, he equips all of us to serve his command, to serve his commission. We all have different roles and gifts, but we all are to be encouraged because Jesus is risen. You have a part to play. It's about an attitude. The resurrection produces mission. It's not about geography. It's about an attitude. Has the resurrection, what has the resurrection produced in you? Has it produced joy, I hope? Has it produced love for Christ? Has it produced a desire to grow, 
It should be producing all of these things. Has it produced assurance of your own salvation? It should produce all of these things. But one of the things, and we're seeing this from Matthew today, it should produce is mission. A sense of mission. It's an attitude of heart. It's this attitude that of, Lord, I don't even know how great my gifts are. I don't feel like I could do very much for you. But I love you, Lord. And so the things that matter to you matter to me. Would you just use me however you see fit so that I could be a part of what you're doing? Jesus loves that prayer. It's about an attitude that has come to terms with the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for you, what that means for everyone, what that means for the 80,000 people that live in the Downingtown Area School District. 80,000 people. Not all of them are following Jesus. What will we do about it? It's about the unreached. It's about people that have no access to the gospel. It's about what that resurrection means for the world. People need to be reached with the gospel of forgiveness, hope, and life. It's an attitude of heart. It's a desire that the name of Jesus would be made famous. We were singing about it this morning. Don't you want more people to join? Don't you want more people to sing of the fame of Jesus? Our uppermost concern is that all we do would bring pleasure to Jesus, would bring glory to Jesus, would bring fame to Jesus. We have a mission, church because of the resurrection. And we're going to watch the mission unfold as we baptize two ladies this morning. So I'm going to ask J. Russ to join me up here.